Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I mean, something wrong. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands. Look, I'll tail with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub of face, cherub of face little boy who would do it, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount of uh, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. When Las Vegas real estate magnate Ron Rudin went missing in 1994, his wife Margaret didn't seem too concerned. He'd been gone four days before she reported Ron missing. And she did so only after Ron's co-workers had already informed the police. Margaret soon became the prime suspect when her husband's charred remains were discovered at a nearby lake. When the law closed in on the softly spoken grandmother, she skipped town. On the lam, Margaret Rudin deployed a plethora of disguises and fake identities to elude capture. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony award-winning first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. I'm pretty sure we're the first podcast to ever EGOT. Yes, but are we the first podcast to ever lie about having EGOTed? Lies are facts these days if you just say them confidently enough. Yeah, that's true. As a patron, you'll also have access to exclusive patron-only episodes where we essentially do what we do in the wide release 
bonus episodes, but with a bit more singing and a lot more creepy declarations of love for our patrons. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty creepy. Yeah, it does get kind of like, I don't know, I feel a little uncomfortable about some of the things we say. <laughs> <laughs> Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. Now, that's not the kind of badges that will bite you on the ass. These are the badges that you, you put on your jacket. Yeah, or you could stick them on your ass if you felt like a biting sensation in that region. Levels $10 and above get a selection of bloody legendary merchandise. That's true. Now, we're recording together in person again today, and it still has novelty value. Melbourne hasn't fucked it up badly enough to be put back into lockdown again yet. Fingers crossed we keep it this way. Yeah. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Residents of the wholesome desert oasis of Las Vegas woke to a bright sunny morning on December 19th, 1994. With Christmas just around the corner, the birds were chirping and the cacti were glowing, almost as if they were anticipating the arrival of Santa and the smiles of children as they eagerly opened their festively wrapped presents. You've never been to Las Vegas, have you? That obvious? <laughs> yeah, well, using the word wholesome was your first mistake. It probably would be more like... With Christmas just around the corner, sex workers, compulsive gamblers, burnt-out drag queen showgirls and tooth-challenged alligator wrestlers <laughs> rolled out of bed and got ready to hustle and bedazzle one more day towards their death and ultimate release from a life of neon-lit struggle and pain. <laughs> oh, that's dark. I like it. <laughs> In another part of Sin City, 64-year-old Ron Rudin, a successful real estate developer, had not shown up for work. Ron had his office in a small strip mall in West Las Vegas. When his employees rocked up that morning, they were surprised to see their boss had yet to arrive. This was unusual for the always punctual Ron. Mike Fleeman wrote in his book, If I Die... He always showed up at the same time every morning. He always parked in the same place. So when he didn't show up at the right time and park in the right place on that Monday morning in December, everybody instantly knew something was wrong. The employees went next door to talk to Ron's wife, Margaret. She had just opened an antique shop, paid for by her husband. They found her store was closed and Margaret was nowhere to be found. They rang her at the home she shared with Ron, but she didn't seem too concerned about her husband's no-show, saying, I'm sure I don't know where he is. Four days later, the nonchalant Margaret contacted police and filed a missing persons report. Police found her affect a tad strange and asked to record the interview with her. Margaret agreed and then explained why she wasn't worried about her husband's disappearance. She said she had last seen Ron the night before his vanishing and that nothing had seemed out of the ordinary. He seemed okay. He didn't seem upset. He'd been a little peeved at me over the weekend because I had to work all the time. She added that their marriage had not been the best lately and she thought Ron might just need some space. But I thought nothing of it because, you know, maybe he was peeved. Maybe he did decide to go out for a while. Maybe he did go to, you know... Whatever. When questioned further, investigators asked Margaret if she had any theories about what might have happened to her husband, to which she replied, Nobody moves the whole line. That's the part that worries me. Maybe there's something that was going on with a business or a personal guilt. Well, that's a really odd thing to say. <laughs> I have no clue what it means. Detectives searched the Rudens' home for clues. They found no sign of forced entry or a struggle, and the house alarm hadn't been tripped. Much like Barney's son's interest in fidget spinners, without warning, Ron Rudin had vanished into thin air. 
Yeah, he really doesn't like those fidget spinners anymore. He was really all about them for yeah. a hot minute, but then it was like, boom, gone. Yeah, gone. Mm. Initially, the investigation went nowhere. In the first three weeks, police wasted valuable time following up on crappy, bogus leads. One was from a dodgy motel owner who told investigators that Ron was in his motel with a sex worker on the night of his disappearance. That was until, as he claimed, he was whisked away by undercover agents in a car and driven to parts unknown. (laughs) Sounds legit. Yeah, it wasn't. The break in the case came more than a month after Ron Rudin went missing. On January 21st, 1995, fishermen stumbled upon a grisly scene at Nelson's Landing, a desert gully on the banks of Lake Mojave, just over an hour out of Las Vegas. There they discovered a blackened and charred human skull sporting three bullet holes. Nearby were the ashes of a campfire which contained more burnt human bones and what was left of an antique trunk. A few steps away lay a gold bracelet with the letters R-O-N spelt out in rhinestones. Was this all that remained of Ron Rudin? Dental records said yes. After the positive identification, detectives now had the unpleasant task of informing his next of kin, in this case, his wife Margaret. After telling her about the discovery of her husband's charred bones and that they believed he'd been murdered, investigators were more than a little surprised at Margaret's response. Detective on the case, Phil Ramos, told TV show American Justice, she started rubbing her eye, just like this. Then it occurred to me she was really digging her knuckle into her eye. I thought she was trying to make herself cry. Detective Ramos went on to say, That was a turning point, in my opinion, when we really had to focus on Margaret. She was our prime suspect. Margaret was having none of this, saying, I think that there are people that know things. I think that there are people that haven't come forward before. Maybe they didn't know how. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were intimidated. (sighs) Oh, she's a piece of work, isn't she? Yeah, she's uh, not coming across particularly well at this point, and I'm kind of guessing she's not going to. Police began delving into Margaret's life, and the more they learnt about her and her relationship with her husband, the more suspicious they became. It appeared the 56-year-old grandmother was not exactly well-liked. Mike Fleeman wrote in his book, If I Die, Margaret Rudin is a person who makes a very good first impression. People meet her, they like her. But then, as they get to know her, they start seeing what they would say is another side of her, a manipulative side, an obsessive side. Margaret Rudin, nee Craftby, was born in Memphis, Tennessee, one of three daughters of a barber. Cheap haircuts all round. Ah, the only one that could ever teach me was the daughter of a barber man. Yes, she was. The family moved frequently and she had lived in 15 states before graduating from high school. Margaret met Ron Rudin in the summer of 1987 at a church. They found they had a few things in common, Tara. Both were natives of Illinois and both had been married four times. Yeah, if they get married one more time, then they both get a free sub. They had a little punch card. Oh, a little punch card. Yeah, nice. Ron found the red-headed Margaret quite charming. Ron fell for Margaret and so did his family. Margaret's cousin, Doris Cowman, told American Justice she was very refined tailored, attractive, but thinking back, she was very quiet. She did not say a lot, but I thought she was a very good match with Ron. Based on what? (laughs) Her quietness? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, you know, doesn't sound anything really, does it? No, because it's the sound of silence. Each time Margaret married, it seemed to be a step up, with each husband being wealthier than the last. 
but none of her previous divorces had been especially lucrative. According to friends, she came to Las Vegas hunting for a new husband and financial security. Ron and Margaret married in September 1987 at the First Church of Religious Science in Las Vegas. Free subs for everyone! Woohoo! Immediately, Margaret moved into Ron's house at 5113 Alpine Way. It was located on a quiet side street behind his strip mall real estate office in West Las Vegas. The same house where Ron had lived with all of his previous wives. If those walls could talk, they'd probably swear. (laughs) The house was not much to look at and definitely did not reflect Ron's success as a businessman. Hmm. It's strange that this successful man who was in the real estate game had a bit of a crappy house. Yeah, well, I guess these things weren't important to him. He was a rather modest man. One thing that does perplex me about him living there is that the house had also been the site of a horrific suicide. In 1978, Ron's third wife, Peggy Randolph Rudin, shot and killed herself in their bedroom. The same bedroom that he slept in with all of his wives, including Margaret. Like, that's a bit weird. I mean, I get they they got a free sub, but they didn't have to sleep in that room. Um, Haven't you had the same bed since you were 18? I do, but it has more than my history. The bed is about 140 years old. Wow, imagine how many people have banged in it. Like, people that you probably wouldn't want to watch bang. Or given birth or died. Your bed is full of sex ghosts. Cool. Back to the Rudin house, what Ron's most modestly priced domicile excelled in was security. Surrounded by a seven-foot-high fence, the Rudin home was protected by an alarm system, surveillance cameras and guard dogs. Bork! Woof! Ron, who was nuts about security, was also nuts about guns. I believe one would call him a gun enthusiast. Yes, one would. His second wife, Caroline, recalled, On his nightstand, there would be only two magazines. One, the real estate news, and one, the gun collector's news. Those were his two loves. The marriage of Ron and Margaret started out well enough, but just a year after their nuptials, Ron stepped out and began a sordid, steamy affair with another woman. To say Margaret was not pleased would be an understatement. She was enraged. I don't like that sort of thing, you bastard! To make things worse, in 1988 she overheard her husband chatting in a sexy manner to his side piece on the phone. Hey, baby. Hey, baby, what are you wearing? (laughs) Investigators would later find an entry in Margaret's diary about the massive argument that followed. Margaret wrote that she pulled a gun on Ron, but Ron grabbed it and then the gun went off. No one was injured and after a brief separation, the two reconciled. Although Margaret was angry about Ron's infidelities and his drinking, the thing that especially tooted her rage horn was Ron being cagey and stingy with his money. Ron was an extremely private man, not sharing details of his business with anyone, including his wife. This annoyed Margaret. She found her husband's penchant for subterfuge maddening, and it was killing her not knowing what was going on. Ron had put her on a small allowance, so she had no idea exactly how much he was worth and where he was stashing his dough. Police learned that Margaret's obsession with her husband's cash had driven her to do some real sneaky clandestine shit. In 1991, Margaret put on her secret agent hat and secretly installed listening devices in Ron's office. What would a secret agent hat actually look like? Well, I can't tell you that. Because it's classified? You betcha. 
Regardless of the shape of Margaret's hat, the bugs did not go unnoticed by clever Ron. He suspected that Margaret had bugged his place of work due to her increasing knowledge of his business. Ron confessed his fears to his ex-wife Carolyn, with whom he had remained close. It seemed to Ron that Margaret had a great deal of information about every move he was making and every transaction he was involved in. To Ron, there was no other way to explain the knowledge that his wife now possessed. Not wanting to tip Margaret off to his suspicions, Ron did the next best thing. In 1991, Ron made a change to his will that dealt with the possibility of his own murder. Without telling Margaret, he stipulated that if his death and I quote, was caused directly or indirectly by a beneficiary of my estate, that person should be cut from the will. Well, I mean, just makes sense, doesn't it? Three years later, Ron's fear of an untimely death at the hands of Margaret was realised. While detectives investigated further, they observed more of the Margaret Rudin shit show. And let's just say that Margaret's behaviour troubled investigators. On Christmas Day, less than a week after Ron's disappearance, Margaret went to Ron Rudin's real estate office and searched her husband's private papers. Afterwards, Margaret began a complete overhaul of their once shared bedroom. She told a friend she wanted to make the bedroom into a coffee shop. A what now? A coffee shop, because that's going to work, Tara. It's a house with a seven-foot fence around it on a quiet street with no foot traffic. Mm, Yeah, like an internet cafe would make more sense, because then you can just, like, email the coffee. That's not how internet cafes work. Oh, yeah, too big for emails. You have to, like, upload them to the Dropbox. No. (laughs) Just under a month later, on January 25th, 1995, four days after the discovery of Ron Rudin's burnt remains, Las Vegas police were contacted by a handyman-slash-builder named Augustine Lovato. Margaret had hired Lovato to work on the bedroom-slash-coffee-shop renovation. (laughs) What? Lovato informed the popo that Margaret had told him to rip up and dispose of a dirty carpet in the bedroom. The carpet, when he pulled it up, had a strange odour to it, Tara, and there was discoloration and what he described as dark, splotchy marks. He said... He had a bad feeling about it. Lovato's bad feeling was good enough for the police, who sent an officer over to check it out. Lovato explained to the officer, I pulled up some stuff and there was this mildewy smell, but this was a little bit stronger than mildew. It was kind of pretty rank. Like, out in Arizona, my dogs like to chew on rabbits and stuff, and it smelled like that, like after they've been chewing on rabbits. Post-rabbit chew. He then led the cop, he then led the cop, whose eyebrows were well and truly raised by then, to the dumpster where he'd thrown out the carpet as well as a soiled mattress. When the officer looked at the carpet and mattress, he also had a bad feeling, so he called in some detectives. I feel like we could keep going on this tangent all day, and then the detectives had a bad feeling, so oh, they, they called in a oh, priest. Oh, yeah, cuts back. <laughs> <laughs> and the priest had a bad feeling, so he called in, yeah, yeah. Um, Detectives scratched their heads and possibly their balls and speculated that the discoloration on the mattress and carpet could be blood, and so they sent them off to the lab for analysis. Post-haste. Indeed. Margaret's foolhardy home improvement slash bedroom coffee shop project gave detectives the clues they'd been looking for. Meanwhile, the Margaret shit show continued. The trustees of Ron Rudin's estate, estimated to be worth a whopping $10 million, had cut off Margaret's access to his money. This did not please Margaret. She fought back with a civil suit. She claimed she was entitled to 60% of her murdered husband's estate. 
The trustees said, uh-uh, she wasn't, and they cited Rom's directive denying money to anyone responsible for his death, and they were willing to argue in court that Margaret was responsible. In a bizarre twist, the two parties settled and Margaret received around $600,000. So $600,000 seemed like a lot of money, but when compared to the $6 million she thought she had coming, Margaret was pissed. But she took the money. She was going to need it. In a very special episode of the Margaret Rudin shit show, Margaret, now a widow, receives only a tenth of the estate from the husband she has just murdered. And it's filmed in front of a live audience. Now with a shit ton of probable cause, detectives obtained a search warrant for Ron Rudin's most modestly priced domicile. Here's who to the what now? His house. Aye. Their investigators found trace amounts of blood on the walls and ceiling of the bedroom, which was sent out for DNA testing. Detectives suspected Ron was shot in the head while sleeping, which would account for the blood on the wall, ceiling, mattress and carpet. Ron Rudin's body was then placed in a trunk and brought to the remote desert gully where he was burned. Investigators found a link between that trunk and Margaret Rudin at the antique shop Ron had set up for her. The trunk itself was described as an antique humpback trunk or a camelback trunk, and Margaret, of course, was an antique dealer and had access to this type of trunk. There's a lot of trunks in that sentence. Yeah, seriously trunk heavy. Police searched her antique shop and came across an invoice and receipts for two humpback trunks. One couldn't be accounted for, Tara. Mm. Where did it go? Detectives put Margaret Rudin under surveillance. We'll be back with the conclusion of Sin City Meridicide after this. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, Barney, I believe it's about the right time for me to ask you what the time is. It's True Crime Nerd Time. Hey! True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, screen burp, screen burp song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. Are you itchy? I ask you that, listeners. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from our most favourite contributor, Tracy Stewart. Oh, most favourite and regular. Mm. And she wrote to us about the true crime book, American Heiress, by Jeffrey Tubin. And she writes, Hey, Barney and Tara, American Heiress is a book about Patricia Hurst. The stupid runs very deep in this story. <laughs> That's a great beginning. <laughs> Patricia Hearst was young and ignorant and self-centered. The revolutionaries were pretty much morons or delusional at best, and the FBI wasn't too sharp either. The other notable characteristic of the people featured in this book is a marked lack of loyalty. Among the SLA, there seemed to be cohesion, sort of, but Patricia Hearst's erstwhile fiancé, Steve Weed, seems to have been the weediest and weaseliest of weeds. 
universally despised, including by the author and me. And, of course, Patricia herself turned on a dime, bending with whatever breeze most benefited her. Geoffrey Toobin's sympathies obviously lie with her parents, most especially her father, Randy. It's natural, and I agreed, but it's also a little startling to see such blatant bias in what I expected to be a journalistic biography. Toobin is the reason I read this book, along with the fact that I knew surprisingly little about the whole saga. But I wasn't overwhelmingly impressed by the writing. It tends to loop and double back on itself. The repetitiveness gets a bit old now and then. This is also the story of how the idealism of the 1960s died. Tubin writes, Nixon might not have brought the Vietnam War to a close, but he did end the draft. Freed from the fret of conscription, many thousands of otherwise apolitical young people drifted away from the anti-war movement. Patricia declined to be interviewed for the book, which I have to say, given the tone of the book towards her, might not have been a good idea. I think it's probably like um, going on the stand to defend yourself, you know. The book covers how the kidnapping came to happen, one version of the events of the long period of Patricia's captivity slash participation, and how it all came crashing down, and the repercussions to all involved. It's not a great book. (laughs) I'm not sure if even all that good a book... But it was entertaining, and it's good to have a gap in my education filled in. Lessons learned from this book? Rich isn't necessarily rich. Stupid is at least as scary as smart. Mm -hmm. Building bombs generates team spirit. (laughs) Just because there's no smell of cyanide doesn't mean it's not there. You might just be one of the 10% who can't smell it. Oh, that worries me. Always know where your shoes are. Always know where your Molotov cocktails are. And most prevalently and most importantly, change your story enough times and no one, possibly including you, will ever know the truth. (laughs) Well, that's great. Thanks, Tracy. That book is American Heiress by Jeffrey Tubin, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Because Tracy can't do all of them. No, no. Although she's given it a red hot go on and we really appreciate that. We do. (laughs) My name is Paige and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can turn into nightmares. Join me as I tell you about horrific reveries on the Reverie True Crime Podcast, wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Things have been tough for everyone this year, particularly right now. And we're dealing with issues we couldn't have imagined. Is everything going on in the world at the moment, and the way this year is pounding out, having a negative impact on your mental health? Is this dumpster fire of a year stopping you from achieving your goals? had about as much as you can take and you're just really not sure what to do about it anymore? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than right now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. You can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. 
all without having to leave your house or go wait somewhere with the people. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as stress, relationships, sleeping problems, trauma and family conflicts. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they've been recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, you can check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's better com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of Sin City Meridicide. There was one hole in the detective's theory about Margaret murdering Ron. How could she have put a 220 pound man inside of a trunk and then dragged it up to a rugged ravine? I don't know. Magic? Levitation spell? Wingardium Leviosa. Nah, man, you're saying it wrong. It's Leviosa. <sighs> Leviosa, cunt. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not particularly feasible, is it, Harry Potter? Did she put it in her Ario speed wagon? Um, no. The surveillance that investigators put Margaret under bore fruit. Strange, hairy, Middle Eastern fruit. <laughs> Surveillance photos revealed Margaret had been spending a lot of time with a 40-year-old Israeli national and holy oil salesman named Yehuda Sharon. Okay, what the fuck is a holy oil salesman? Uh, It's a perfume used to anoint the vessels of the Jewish tabernacle, obviously. Oh, that holy oil. Yeah, that one. Detectives quickly considered him a possible accomplice. After all, somebody had to have helped her, and he seemed to them like a possible trunk dragger. Detectives tracked him down and hauled him in for an interview. Sharon told police he worked as a computer programmer as well as a holy oil salesman and that he and Margaret were just friends. He vehemently denied that they were bumping uglies. But police also discovered that on the weekend of Ron Rudin's disappearance, Sharon had rented a large van, large enough, one might say, to carry a large humpback antique trunk. Two months later, though, a new source would contradict Sharon and provide police with crucial information. Margaret's younger sister, Donna Cantrell. At first, the 43-year-old was reluctant to come forward. Detective on the case, Phil Ramos, told TV show American Justice, I think in her heart she didn't want to believe it, but there was so much pointing towards it that she couldn't deny the fact that Margaret had to have something to do with this murder, simply because of the evidence that was there. Eventually, Donna Cantrell would confirm many of the investigators' suspicions, including the one about Margaret Rutten making the beast with two backs with Yehuda Sharon. Bumping uglies. Yeah, huh. She also told them that Margaret had bugged her husband's office. Still, was that enough? Was it? I don't know. Yeah, nah. Prosecutors did not feel the circumstantial evidence they had would be enough to indict Margaret. They had less than bugger all physical evidence directly linking her to the murder. No fingerprints, no fibres, you know, no evidence essentially. 
There were also no eyewitnesses to the actual murder or the disposal of the body, and she never confessed to anyone. Finally, in July 1996, 18 months after Ron Rudin's murder, authorities got the break they needed. Student divers at Lake Mead, 40 miles out of Las Vegas, found a 22 calibre Ruger pistol, along with a silencer wrapped in plastic and submerged under shallow water. Las Vegas police learned that the gun had once been the property of Ron Rudin, but had disappeared shortly after Margaret moved in with him. That fact only added to their suspicions of her. Detective Ramos said, We were able to link up the gun to the projectiles that were found in Ron Rudin's skull. That was a huge break for us. By now, prosecutors also had final DNA results, showing that Ron Rudin's blood was on the carpet and mattress found in the dumpster. Armed with this new evidence and the murder weapon, they went before a grand jury. Margaret was very aware that authorities were seeking an indictment against her. In fact, she was heard on the wiretap saying that Clark County Grand Jury couldn't indict a ham sandwich. Which is not how the saying goes. Uh, If you have an overzealous DA, you'd normally say, Oh, that guy would indict a ham sandwich. Not couldn't. Margaret was a bit shit at sandwich analogies. She was kind of right, though. The DA did not indict a ham sandwich. They indicted her. Nice. On April 18, 1997, a Clark County grand jury indicted Margaret Rudin for first-degree murder, more than two years after the death of her husband. Las Vegas police issued a warrant for her arrest, and here's where it gets good. On a very special season finale of the Margaret Rudin shit show, Margaret takes the shit show on the road. That's right, Tara. Detectives called her attorney when the indictment was presented and asked him to bring her in. The attorney said he no longer represented her and had no idea where she was. Margaret Rudin was now a fugitive. A nationwide Margaret hunt ensued. (laughs) This was a bit of a fuck-up. As soon as it was known a grand jury had been convened, detectives should have been aware of her location at all times. This wasn't the only fuck-up. Shortly before Margaret skipped town, the Clark County District Attorney's Office granted her mysterious friend, Yehuda Sharon, immunity in exchange for his grand jury testimony. But giving the possible accomplice this free ride proved to be a gigantic misstep. On the stand, Sharon made like Johnny Tight Lips. I don't know nothing. I didn't see nothing. You can't blame me for nothing. She ain't guilty. (laughs) Well, that's probably more than Johnny Tight Lips would say. (laughs) That's right. He clammed up. They were left with a purely circumstantial case against Margaret Rudin, who was nowhere to be found. It didn't really surprise investigators that she ran off. What surprised them was that she was so good at it. Margaret took her $600,000 out in cash, dyed her red hair dark brown and went to some fancy elaborate means to obtain false identities, which included social security cards, passports and fake driver's licences. For nearly a year and a half, the police were chasing their tails and had no idea where the elusive murder suspect was. In all that time, they had few valid leads on her whereabouts. Then in August 1998, a woman in Phoenix, Arizona, contacted authorities there. She had seen a segment on one of my favourite TV shows. The Gilmore Girls. No, America's Most Wanted. It featured a sought-after fugitive, which they nicknamed the Black Widow of Vegas. Snore. Unimaginative title. I know. She told Phoenix Police that an acquaintance of hers named Anne Boatwright looked like the woman in the segment. The police went to question this Anne Boatwright. 
But Anne Boatwright was Anne Boatwrong. <laughs> she was interviewed by the same officer twice, and both times she was able to convince him that she was not this Margaret Rudin that he talked to her about. The officer fell for her Betty White routine and just couldn't believe that this soft-spoken, sweet, grandmotherly person could be a murderer. Only later did investigators search her room at the YMCA and find a keychain with a Ron Rudin Realty logo. But the clue came too late. Margaret, like an alarmingly beautiful plastic shopping bag, was in the wind. A year later, in October 1999, authorities learned that Margaret had sent several packages from a P.O. box in Revere, Massachusetts, to a friend in Utah. The contents included Christmas presents for Margaret's three grandchildren. Transformers, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Police from Revere staked out the apartment where the P.O. box holder lived. While spending many fart-filled hours in the cramped van, investigators noticed the apartment got a lot of deliveries from Domino's Pizza. On the next delivery, they grabbed the surprise delivery driver off the street, they took his uniform and the pizza and put him in the van. Oh, fellas, I'm going to need that back. They take that out of my next paycheck, which isn't much, and if I had a girlfriend... Shut up, kid. We're apprehending a dangerous fugitive. Okay. (laughs) I don't have a girlfriend. And you never will. Not with that attitude. A detective disguised as a domino delivery dude took a quick look at the pizza and was disgusted to see it was ham and pineapple. He shut the lid and pounded on the door. A man answered, And pizza's here! He was quickly pushed out of the way as the cops came charging in, guns drawn. They found Margaret cowering in the bathroom by the toilet. Question as to whether she knew why she was being taken into custody, Margaret Ann Boatrong Rudin replied, <laughs> Yeah, it's about that Vegas thing. She was extradited back to Vegas where she claimed that while on the lam, she was afraid of being found out by those she described as her husband's shadowy business associates. It was difficult. I was always looking over my shoulder. I was always afraid. Look in the mirror, you murdering witch. <laughs> I was afraid of who stood to gain the most, you know, from Ron's murder. It was you. It yes. was you who gained the most from his murder. <laughs> I was terribly frightened of myself during that period. Soon after her return to Las Vegas, Margaret made a decision that would eventually make her case even more nutty. She chose attorney Michael Amador to lead her defence team. According to his own website, he has a reputation for hard-hitting, aggressive representation and has a take-no-prisoners attitude towards every case. Before working as a defence attorney, Amador spent eight years as a Clark County prosecutor, where, according to nobody but him, he earned the nickname Slamador. <laughs> yeah, don't slam a door on your way out, right? Self-nicknamed Slamador successfully represented Nicky Sticks and the rest of Motley Crue for allegedly inciting a riot at a concert in Las Vegas, getting both a dismissal as well as an apology from local law enforcement. <laughs> oh, we're really sorry, Nicky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all right. Just don't do it again. You know, it's, uh... Want a line? Yeah, want a line? Oh, now, now you two shake hands. <laughs> Oh, I don't want to shake hands with him. He looks dirty. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, when they, when a teacher or someone makes you shake hands with someone who's, like, started a fight with you and, like, you're not ready to shake hands but they make you, I've just got a memory of that happening. Really? Yeah. Because you got in a lot of fist fights at school, didn't you? I got punched a couple of times, but I wasn't really – I wasn't a lover or a fighter, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty nothing, to tell right. you the truth. A gigantic pretty nothing person. Oh, you've come so far. Yeah, not really, huh? 
The Slamador law firm had represented four fugitives from justice profiled on America's Most Wanted. Now that kind of gives you a little bit of a taste for what they're into, doesn't it? Slamador relished the opportunity to defend the 56-year-old grandmother and all the headlines that entailed. He told media, Here is a case where I'm championing the cause of a poor widow who was left out in the cold. I am representing the little guy or the little woman. Is there nothing you can't do? Classic Slamador. Yeah, totes. The trial began on March 2nd, 2001. Slamador had taken great pains to make sure Margaret appeared sympathetic to the jury. She looked old, scared, feeble, weak and not in control. He would later say, Oh, that was no accident. That, that was a $450 an hour makeup artist I'd hired from a modelling agency. In its opening arguments, the prosecution outlined its case by pointing to Margaret's means, motive and opportunity. The evidence will show that, like an individual in the centre of her own soap opera, she sat and manipulated, almost like a puppeteer pulling strings. Then Michael Slamador began his opening argument, which was later described as two and a half hours of nonsensical garbage. Let's hear just a little bit of it, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, jury. Margaret. Tom. Michael. Gentlemen. in a lot of different ways. Some days are difficult. Some days we hear bad news or we go through a difficult time. But every day, every day, depending on how you look at it, with a few exceptions, can be a celebration. And I don't mean that lightly. There are things about our lives today and the place where we live that are like no other place and no other time in history. So if I, at times, even in question, you become melodramatic, or I discuss or question jurors about things that might be important to me or to you, and as I go through the things I anticipate that this trial will bring to you and to us, I say it's a, a great day for each of you because you have an opportunity to experience what we do here, courtrooms filled with all sorts of different people, the eyes of the world are upon us. What just happened then? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Mike Fleeman wrote in his book, If I Die, it was the strangest opening statement I have ever seen. He went on these weird tangents about himself and his own life. It was a mess and it made no sense. <laughs> Damn right. Frustrated Judge Joseph Bonaventure reprimanded Amador and told him, the purpose of an opening statement is just to indicate what the evidence is going to show and not to go into your personal beliefs about your passion and your soccer dad. You yelling at staff? I never heard that in an opening statement in my life. <laughs> it was not a good start for the defence and it only got worse. My personal favourite is this exchange when Slamador tells the packed courtroom Oh, during the course of the trial, there may be objections and things like that. Don't worry about that. We just have to do some other things. To which Judge Bonaventure replied, Don't worry about objections. We'll have to do other things. I have no idea what that means. What the heck are you talking about? 
Prosecutors presented what they believed was a solid case based on the circumstantial evidence. Witnesses detailed the traces of blood found in the Rudin bedroom, which DNA tests had proven was Ron's. They also introduced the murder weapon that had once belonged to Ron Rudin and the testimony of the handyman who, shortly after Rudin's disappearance, had thrown out the carpet and mattress, both stained with Ron's blood. Smells like me dogs eating rabbits. Certainly did. Then the prosecution called a crucial witness to the stand, one who could tie together all the threads of circumstantial evidence in the case, Margaret Rudin's sister, Donna Kentrell. Margaret was clearly not thrilled to see her sister in court. Hi, Margaret. How you going? (laughs) I'm going to sink you, you fucking cunt. Donna told the court that her sister and Ron Rudin were having marital problems before he disappeared and she confirmed that Margaret had installed listening devices in her husband's office. She even told the court exactly what those devices were, describing them as four different pieces, two of them were identical to one another, they were actually the plug, the plug that you would plug into an electrical outlet. The other piece was what I called the receiver and the other piece would be a voice-activated cassette recorder. Donna told of her sister's complaints about her boozing, cheating husband. I said, I thought you were going to divorce him. And she said, he's not in very good health. He can't even walk without being out of breath. And I think I'll wait. (laughs) I think I'll wait. Well, she didn't wait, did she? No. She changed her mind about waiting. Yeah, she got a little bit impatient. Donna also testified that she had once seen a trunk like the one found near Ron Rudin's remains in her sister's antique store. She took a picture of the opening of the shop, which showed Margaret, and off to the left was the trunk. After Ron's disappearance, Donna said, I never saw the trunk again. Finally, she corroborated claims that her sister was having an affair with Sharon, the man who prosecutors believed helped Margaret dispose of Ron Rudin's body. Donna even went as far as saying what Margaret had told her about her relationship with the holy oil salesman, saying how much she enjoys being with him, how much she cares about him, how wonderful he makes her feel, how pretty he makes her feel, how smart he is. Oh, Jesus, get a room. Next came Defence Attorney Slamador's cross-examination of Donna. For the next four hours, he questioned her use of prescription drugs and her multiple marriages. Prosecutors pressed Judge Joseph Bonaventure on the relevance of Slamador's arguments. The judge agreed and told Slamador, I don't like the Jerry Springer show and I don't want to make this a Jerry Springer show. Move it along. The next morning, Margaret Rudin, pissed at her defence, addressed the court. I would like to ask for a mistrial because I don't believe Armador's prepared enough in the one area of talking with witnesses. There hasn't been any investigation. Margaret's request was based on what's known as the Strickland Standard for Effective Counsel, which says that a defendant's constitutional rights are violated if she does not receive a reasonably competent defence counsel. Slamador gritted his teeth and went along with his client's wishes, citing his own disastrous opening statement, saying, Oh, I don't think that my opening statement either measures up to my own standards or to the Strickland standards for effective assistance of counsel. Right, so he admitted he was a bit shit. Privately, however, Armador disagreed with his client's assessment of his performance and with her request for a mistrial. He said later... Or when I moved for a mistrial, I didn't say because I wasn't prepared and that I'd done a bad job. I did a good job. (laughs) I had to fall on my sword. I didn't like it, but I did it for my client. (laughs) It's the slam it all way. 
Whether she deserved it or not, four days later, when the trial reconvened, Judge Bonaventure ruled, and while Amador's strategies may not have worked, he had at least been reasonably competent, saying, It is not a perfect world. A defendant is entitled to a fair trial, but not a perfect one. The sad thing was that Amador was so shit, he couldn't even sufficiently convince the judge that he was shit. <laughs> With Margaret's battle for a mistrial now over, her attorneys fought on to prove her innocence. They highlighted the fact that the blood the police had uncovered a month after Ron Rudin's disappearance wasn't all his. They pointed out that Ron's third wife, Peggy, had shot herself in the same room nearly 20 years earlier. There were only a couple of specks of blood that were actually identified through DNA testing as being Ron Rudin's. The defence then presented a theory that blood that was his wasn't necessarily from the murder. They claimed blood from Ron Rudin's sneezes explained the traces discovered on his bedroom ceiling. Ron Rudin apparently suffered from terrible nosebleeds, constant terrible violent nosebleeds. The defence argued he'd aim his head straight up to the ceiling and sneeze straight up. <laughs> oh, yeah, people do that all the time. And, and I mean, if, if you... If you can think of a better way of dealing with a nosebleed, I'd certainly like to hear about it. The defence continued with a theatrical display. They constructed a life-size model of the Rudin bedroom in the courtroom and placed a replica of his skull on the bed. They even had all the carpet, uh, sorry, the wallpaper and carpet and <laughs> nightstands and stuff. Oh, okay. They, uh, they went all out. Oh, God, it was bizarre. On the third day of their presentation, while questioning a blood expert, defence co-counsel Tom Pataro used this setting to give a dramatic reenactment of the crime. He hoped to show that the prosecution's theory that Ron was killed in bed wasn't true. It was a display that looked and sounded very stupid. <laughs> Judge Bonaventure was furious and told the jury to disregard the whole exhibition. Disregard the whole exhibition. Finally, on April 26, 2001, after 10 weeks and 66 witnesses, the case went to the jury. After five days of deliberation, the jury delivered its verdict to an emotional courtroom. As to count two, murder with the use of a deadly weapon, we find the defendant guilty. Margaret Rudin showed no emotion. Afterwards, Michael Slamador maintained that he served his client to the best of his ability. Oh, I was attacked from one side to the <laughs> other, bite from every direction. It wasn't right, it wasn't fair. But when I finished the job as best I could and with the help of other counsel, we did a damn good job. One jury person commented to the media after the verdict, I've said all along you could have had Johnny Cochran, Bruce Cutler, Jerry Spence, F. Lee Bailey for her attorneys, and we still would have found her guilty. The mountain of evidence was just there. She was guilty as hell. After the verdict, Slamador sat in the courthouse hallway, looking dejected as one of his three ex-wives tried to comfort him. <laughs> Slamador. Oh. He said of the prosecutors, Oh, they make me sick. I don't know how it is that right-thinking people can find someone guilty with no evidence. You never had a bargain, mate. You never had any fucking evidence. <laughs> <laughs> On August 31st, Judge Bonaventure sentenced Margaret Rudin to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years. She was sent to the Southern Nevada Women's Correctional Facility. Margaret Rudin was released on parole on January 10th, 2020. She told the Las Vegas Review-Journal that she intended to relocate to Chicago to be closer to her daughter, granddaughter and great-grandchildren and that she was optimistic my murder conviction will one day be tossed. Yeah, into a trunk. Yeah, and 
burnt. burnt. Whoa, what a story. Oh, that is crazy. The nosebleed at the ceiling defence is really quite mind-boggling and I've never heard it before. Her whole trial is on YouTube, by the way. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Should we watch it all? Oh, uh, look, I only got through 10 minutes of his opening <laughs> statement. So, hey, Tara, I have a question for you. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Today I'm going to be talking about a drunk man named Kevin Turner from Mandura in Western Australia. Now, he has the dubious honour of not only resisting arrest, but also threatening to hit police officers with his penis. That's no way to get on the police force's Christmas list, Kevo. But it's a great way to get yourself your own Aussie ass. And indeed he has. So Australia Day is on January 26th here. Many people in this country celebrate it while having a barbecue and drinking their weight in beer, while others protest the colonisation of the country and mistreatment of its original Aboriginal inhabitants. Can I hazard a guess at which camp Kevo falls into? Oh yeah, go for it. The... Former? Yeah. <laughs> well, i got to tell you this much. It certainly ain't the latter. Or if it is, he's not doing it well. According to Inquirer.net, on Australia Day in 2017, Kevo's neighbours heard a man yelling and throwing things around his place. Concerned there might be something violent going on, they called the police. When the cops arrived at Kevo's, he was drunk, naked and more than a little bit cranky. In response to their questions, he rather eloquently told the officers to get the fuck off my address. When the cops did not comply by getting the fuck off Kevo's address, he shouted, fat, ugly fucking cunts at them before spitting in one of the officers' faces. He then waggled his penis at them and threatened to hit them with Lil Kevo. (laughs) Kevo's temperament did not improve once he was taken to jail. Although provided with something to wear, Kevo flatly refused to put any clothes on. Well, we've all been there, Tara. Drunk, naked and proud, locked up in a jail cell. (laughs) Speak to you. Speak for yourself, Barney. At one point, Kevo asked permission to go to the toilet, as the holding cell he was in was not equipped with one. After being given the go-ahead to go to the bathroom, Kevo decided to urinate in the cell instead while shouting abuse to make the occasion extra special for everyone in earshot. His defence lawyer, Russell Mark, stated in court that Kevo had been downing tinnies from early afternoon and had combined them with a medication for a neck injury. He also said Kevo was naked when he opened the door to the police because he'd just gotten out of the shower. Hmm. I like, I think we've all gotten out of the shower to answer a knock at the door and not been naked when we did it, but okay. In court, Kevo apologised for his sweary, nude, bodily fluid sharing rampage. Well, I'm really sorry I got my cock out and waved it at you. And he pleaded guilty to charges of disorderly behaviour in a lockup, disorderly behaviour in public, and obstruction of police officers. He was fined $1,500, and I reckon he got off pretty lightly. I mean, he spat in a cop's face while threatening to hit them with his dick. Oh, I said sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that was it. You know what? Um, boys will be boys, Kevo. Yeah. So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Princess Pottymouth from the United States. Tiger Vet in SC from the United States. Seathorn98 from the United States. 
Lily Parker, 101 from Australia. SRK Knight, 1970 from the USA. And Gathers South from the United States. Jenny Frim from the Block, Australia. Oh, Jenny Frim the Block, Australia. <laughs> Hannah Bordage. Nicole Guy. And Keely Ann Johnston. I like Keely. I like that name. Mm. Wow, thanks so much, everyone. That was a that was a bumper fortnight for reviews. Nice one. We'd also like to thank the wonderful Lorraine for all the work she does running the Facebook group with me. You know who else is awesome, Tara? Our patrons. We love them. We do. We love them to like a creepy amount and we love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. The winner of our October prize, a bloody murder 18 by 24 film noir fine art print is Tracy Stewart. Congratulations, Tracy. Our November prize is Get Your Hands Off My Dirty Pillows Wraparound Mug. Get your hands off my dirty pillows. To the perfect expression to start morning with. You could put coffee in it. It's delicious. Maybe you could fill it with vodka and nobody would even know. <laughs> That's what I do. For a chance to win, be a bloody murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. Thank you to Edward Elier, Adam Luke Payet, Anne Fry, Keely Johnson, Patricia Ash, and David Hanks. Thanks thank so much. Thank you, one and all. Thank you. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink. <coughs> <laughs> Every there, fucking time. There's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Sarabin. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, our IMDb listing, or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a get-your-hands-off-my-dirty-pillows would still count. (laughs) And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us on our sweary, nude, bodily fluid-sharing rampages. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod, and Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our fabulous Redless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Are you recording as well? I don't even know anymore. How's it, how's it work again? I've decided not to record my half, um, so we're just going to have your bit. I'm just here for decoration, and I'm failing at it. Ah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just here to fucking bring you down if I feel like you're getting too happy. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's called the power of gravity. It's a fucking treat for everyone involved. Hey, Tara, you know how I like lemonade and I like beer? You like fizzy drinks just all around, really? Well, I, I drink lemonade and I do drink beer, and they're both in white cans, and occasionally <laughs> they get mixed up. Travel back in time a couple of weeks ago, and I went to grab a beer. It was in the afternoon, late afternoon, perfect time to have a beer. Opened a lemonade, sipped it, went, oh, that's not what I want, put it back in the fridge. No one got hurt, nothing, nothing mm, went wrong. See, I can already tell what's going to happen, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. Okay, it was 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> this is what I was and I, figuring. And, and I thought, oh, the lemonade would be really nice. Mmm, refreshing. So I opened this lemonade, took a big swig of it, and went, oh, that's beer. <laughs> Were you kind of repulsed, or did you go, mmm, nice? Mm. Well, I, I, th- I thought to myself, dare I 
Dare I live the dream? <laughs> Dare I live the dream? Should I have any more of this beer? Oh, no, I really shouldn't. I should just put it back in the fridge. But it'll be flat the next time I get it. And then I went, no, no, I can't do this. So I put back the half-drunk beer mm-hmm. in the fridge and it went flat and I drank it later that day. But um, I thought you were going to say one of your kids did the same thing and grabbed the, <laughs> grabbed the half-flat but, beer but, and had a guzzle. But I had a bit of a buzz that morning. Yeah, what was that um, like? I don't know. I, 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 I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, look, it's not something I cultivate, so, you know. Yeah, I, I just wasn't motivated upon. to do my work after that. Yeah, you probably wouldn't be. Yeah. All kinds of other shit you'd rather be doing. <laughs> <laughs> Breakfast beers. Breakfast beers. Not an everyday thing. No, not on a work day. There are some people at my work who are drinking on the job that I know about. I'm not supervising anymore, so I don't give a shit. Um, but yeah, they like day drink while they do it. And um, I, they recommended I do it too. But I was saying, huh, my mouth is hard enough to watch when I'm not drinking. Like, put a beer in me and then have me do work where I have to speak to the public. And I will be fired very fast. You should have just made them listen to the original version of the Animal, <laughs> Animal Kingdom, Kingdom episode. episode. <laughs> <laughs> but they were like, yeah, it's really helpful. You should give it a go. Vodka and orange particularly. Take, some, take the strain off. Get some vitamin C. I'm like, nobody needs nah. to see that. Nobody. That's not good. That's how Dara gets fired. My friend and I were sitting on the balcony the other night. Having a beer, I was drinking that half beer. That uh, ah, flat beer, flat that, breakfast beer. It was Yum. a little bit flat, but it was all right. And I don't, I didn't want to waste it because I'm not an eccentric millionaire. No, you're an eccentric povo bastard. That's right. So we're sitting on the balcony, and I'm drinking my half beer, and we were talking about '80s music and mm-hmm. how you know a lot of it was on cassettes. Oh, cassingles. Cassingles and stuff. And I said, well, you know what? I remember everyone had this one band in their cassette collection, and I never really knew who they were. Head cleaner. <laughs> what, what are they like? And, and she said, are you serious? And I went, and I thought, hang on a second here. I think she believes me. So I went with it and I went, yeah, who are they? I, I, oh. Are they some like indie rock band or something? And she said, no, it's used to clean the, you know, the heads of your cassette. It's How can she have hung out with you so much, like for so many years and, and not know that you're fucking with her? That's and I said, what, clean your heads of your cassettes? I've never heard of that. <laughs> Don't they self-clean? You just don't. You don't need to clean them. And and then she started telling me the mechanisms, uh. the mechanisms of a, a head cleaner and how it works to clean your cassette deck. You put it on yourself. And then I started laughing because I couldn't keep a straight face any longer. You know what? For a second there, I believed you as well. Really? I, I really don't believe you very often. So, yeah, no. I don't know. Maybe you're getting better at bullshitting. When, when I was a small child, I believed that if it was really noisy, you could put in a blank tape and turn it up. And it'd drown out the noise. Yeah. It, so did you try that? No, it, do, it doesn't work. Yeah, I know it doesn't work. But did you try it? Oh yeah, I did. But I, <laughs> I, but before I tried it, I did believe it would work. Oh. You turn up the nothing. Mm-hmm. Wish I could do that now. I feel like we are. <laughs> <laughs> Is this what head cleaner sounds like? Uh, I think head cleaner's better. <laughs> Definitely wittier, sharper, and more charismatic. I'll oh, tell you that much for free. Oh yeah. Yeah, you got Dark Tara in the house today, man. All Dark right. Tara. Well, I, I, 
I wrote some dark stuff for you. Oh, yeah, you uh, did. Yeah. I, knew, I knew you had to lighten it up a little bit. Well, I did. Because it was too dark for you. Well, it wasn't too dark for me. It's just that everything that I say, because I'm female, gets scrutinized at least twice as hard as everything that you say. So you might be all like, blah, 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 and not kind of realize that I will get hung for that, but you will well, get away with it. You know, you've got this two faced, like, woman voice that no one should trust. And I have the trusted <laughs> voice of a newsreader. Yeah. You're comforting and, well, quite frankly, I'm disturbing. Mm, I can't argue with any of this. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm not saying they're wrong. I was thinking of uh, from, for Slamador, I might do a bit of a junkie kind of voice because he's kind of skeevy. You never had a fucking phone. You never had a fucking phone. Slamador's a really good wrestler's name. Hey, I came up with a, I think it's new, but, you know, who knows in this timeline because I feel like, I might have done it before, but I was thinking a, a good uh, drag king name would be Dave Javu. Dave Javu. <laughs> but I mean, maybe I've already said that. Maybe I've already had this thought. I don't even uh, fucking know anymore. What day Dave, is it? Who cares? I, I don't. I think it's Twan's Day. Yeah, well, all day. Twan's Day. Twan's Day, Smiggins. He's only three feet tall. He's a weatherman on the on the TV. Okay. Uh, well, you know what he is. He's the perfect height to bite you in the dick. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. I don't, uh, You're that made welcome. Me, that made me cross my legs. Well, hey, the dog did nearly bite Justin on the dick several times. Really? Oh, well, yeah, he was going for it. So he, he didn't call me fat, though, the dog. So he thought uh, Justin went with the pants-off approach to the first meeting of the new puppy? <laughs> I thought it was a little unusual, but uh, apparently he thought it would help. No, no, that's where, that's they, they see that dangly that's thing there. That's how they and get they, you. they bite it. Yeah. I mean, I come out of the shower and I sometimes see oh. Laszlo watching me, and I know what he's thinking. Look uh, at that dangly thing there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab it with my claws wow. and then I'm going to bite it. He's, look at the size of that. That penis. I'm going to scratch that. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a little witchetty grub. Well, no, that's it'd be yeah, but that's been put through a, a, like a anti shrink ray. Honey, I giganticized Barney's dick. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that movie? It was weird. Oh, it was weird. Uh, but you know, Rick Moranis, he's always up for a good time. He's a good dad. Maybe I should tell you the genesis of that that uh, phrase. You never had a fucking phone. You've got to say it in the right voice, though. You never had a fucking phone. <laughs> yeah, because it's your entryway into that voice now, isn't it? It is. It is. Whenever we're recording and I'm looking for my phone, Tara says, you never had a fucking phone. Yeah, where's my phone? You never had a fucking phone. You never phone. had a phone. Your landline all the way, Yeah, Barney. you've never had a mobile phone in your life. And then I, expl- I pick up the charger and I say, well, explain this. And she says, that's for your son's phone. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then I find the phone and um, she just says, oh, my mistake. Yeah, you do have a phone. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow it ended up your entry line. Yeah. Which so. is weird because I didn't say it like that. No. <laughs> but you never had a fucking phone. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound hauntingly beautiful when you do it in that Oh, voice. yeah, that's my lover voice. I would like to think so. Yeah. That's how I picture it anyway. Can you do um can you do hey baby in that voice? Hey baby. <laughs> hey baby. Yeah, yeah no, I, d- I didn't like that. I've never been to Epping. Oh, I've been to Paradise and I've been to Epping, but not at the same time. <laughs> well, because Epping's a shithole. Yeah, it is. And um, that's where some guy I was briefly seeing lived and he had a white couch and I got a nosebleed. 
<laughs> oh, did you look up to the, the ceiling and, and sneeze? sneeze? Well, that's what they tell you to do, but there were no doctors present, so instead I just tried to not bleed on his white couch. Who has a white fucking couch? I mean, come who on. Who has a glass coffee table? Oh, people who want you to fall. People who want to watch you have a poo. Sorry, I know it's going to be all dingle-dongle, but, you know... Oh, I'm sorry, it's going to be all dingle-dongle. Oh, not again. Not the dingle-dongle. <laughs> I can't help it, man. I can't take any more dingle-dongle. i got the dingle-dongle in my soul. I mean, you can never have enough dingle-dongle. Oh, no, too much dingle-dongle. But you never had a fucking dingle-dongle. I lost it at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I fell out of it. I rolled out. Yeah, plopped out. <laughs> Squelched out, squirted out. Nah, look, I'm just going to stop. Seriously, you're on your own there, buddy. Keep digging, but I'm not helping. I was trying to think, what do you say to be a man? I'm strong. (laughs) Moo. I'm strong. Is that it? Is that a cowman? (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's like a cowboy, but they're older. Yeah, you've got more body hair. Oh, yeah, I never thought of cowboy being like boy, like a little kid. First time for everything. Language. Isn't it fun? I thought cowboy was a very confusing word when I was a child because I thought, well, they don't ride cows. They ride horses. Why are they called cowboys? Well, I think referring to a guy as a horse boy has other implications. I don't know. I'd like to be referred to as a horse. No, I wouldn't. I just thought about that. Sorry, sorry, horse boys say what? (laughs) What? Horse boys say what? What? (laughs) You've been putting the whore on horse boy for years now, Barney. I really have. Margaret's cousin, Doris Cowman, told American Justice, she was very refined, tailored, attractive, but thinking back, she was very quiet. She did not say a lot, but I thought she was a very good match with Ron. Based on what? (laughs) Her quietness? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, you know, doesn't sound anything really, does it? No, because it's the sound of silence. Oh, yeah, you just turn up that blank tape. (laughs) That's how you get there. Put on some head cleaner. Oh, yeah. It's my fucking favourite. Oh, I fucking love head cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? When you listen to him, it kind of clears out your own head too. Oh, yeah, I go to sleep to head cleaner (laughs) and I wake up to it. And in the middle, there's a bit of head cleaner. Yeah. My head's never been more shiny and fresh. Oh, double meaning there. Weird. It's shiny and fresh. Mm. Really? What's a double meaning? Head job. Oh, head job. Um, Haven't you had the same bed since you were 18? I do, but it has more than my history. The bed is about 140 years old. Wow. Imagine how many people have banged in it. Like people that you probably wouldn't want to watch bang. Well, I have. <laughs> Are you sure? Oh, well. <laughs> Not well it's more of a solo bang. It's a <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of noise. Bit of a head cleaner kind of sound. Yeah, yeah. Put on my head cleaner and then I'll have a solo bang. <laughs> All given birth or died. Your bed is full of sex ghosts. Cool. One, the real estate news, and one, the gun collector's news. Those were his two loves. Now, Barney, he said he read them for the articles, but I'm pretty sure it was for the pictorials. Oh, look at that gun and house. Oh, (laughs) check out the size of the kitchen island. (laughs) Never seen one like that before. I think it's Greek marble. 
concrete marble. <laughs> <laughs> Italian marble seemed too cliched. Wow. <laughs> but Greek marble isn't a thing that you hear a lot. Oh, I think that's Macedonian hardwood. Yeah. Oh, damn straight. And you know what? I'm thinking maybe a hint of bamboo. Check, check it out. Seriously, have a close look. Have a close look. What a shame the staple's there. It's missing some really good stuff right where the staple is. It's always the thing, isn't it? The yeah, sometimes staple. they stick the black stickers over the cool bits too. Yeah. <laughs> like the kitchen island and, and the dishwasher. You can just scratch those off. They're like, and you can smell boobs or something, right? Or something. Uh, or something. <laughs> I'm not, no. <laughs> I'm going with or something. The end. All right. While detectives investigated more, they absorbed... Absorbed. <laughs> well, well, I noticed that I was about to say more again and it confused me. The carpet, when he pulled it up, had a strange odour to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Get your head out of your ass, buddy. Yeah, Good luck getting through that sentence without laughing now. <laughs> the carpet. <laughs> Dark splotchy marks. When he pulled it up. Well, I've got a bad feeling about this blot dark splotchy marks on my carpet. <laughs> I don't have a good feeling about them. Surveillance photos revealed Margaret had been spending a lot of time with a 40-year-old Israeli national and holy oil salesman named Yehuda Sharon. Sharon. I like Sharon for that. Sharon. Hey, Shazza. Shaz. Put this body in a trunk for me, Shazza. Oh, fuck. He never even had a fucking trunk. She was kind of right, though. The DA did not indict a ham sandwich. They indicted her. Nice. On April 18th, 1997, a Clark County grand jury indicted Margaret Rudin for first-degree murder. Mortar. Mortar. Yeah, bloody, bloody mortar. mortar. <laughs> bloody mortar. Well, I haven't said murder a lot. No. I mean, it's one of those complicated words that never come up in the podcast, isn't it? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> what about bloody? Can I, you mur- say that? I murdered mortar. You did. You mortared the fuck out of it. For. F- <laughs> a- <laughs> you were about to fuck it again, weren't you? A Clark County grand jury indicted Margaret Rudin. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.